This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello, and thanks for joining us for your weekly podcast, Into England's Past. I'm Charles Rowe. Now, as the days become gradually shorter and cooler, we're looking at some of the traditions that come with autumn. Some, like Guy Fawkes Night and Halloween, are well known. Others, like Harvest Home and Lammas, perhaps less so. Thankfully, though, we have Ronald Hutton, Professor of History at the University of Bristol and an English Heritage Trustee, to talk to us about the origins of these four autumn traditions. Hello, Charles. It's a pleasure to be here. So the first festival we're going to talk about is Lammas. I gather that Lammas used to be held on the 1st of August, but this has now changed to being held on the Sunday closest to the 1st. So when was Lammas this year? It depends who you are. If you are uh, a Christian following the Anglican and some other Christian traditions, it's now the Sunday nearest the 1st of August because Sunday is when most people get to church and can get to church. And so it's the easiest way of commemorating a festival which traditionally always used to be on the 1st of August. And what is Lammas exactly? Because not everyone will have heard of it, I don't think. Apart from a church service, it's died out. It was the loaf mass. It was the festival that opens the autumn season, which is the season of harvest for its first half, and then the settling into winter for the second half. So autumn is from the 1st of August to the 31st of October. And Lammas is about celebrating the beginning of the cereal harvest, the corn reaping, which is some of the most risky and backbreaking and important agricultural work of the entire year. And across Europe, around this time, the first ears of your cereal crop would be ceremonially reaped, baked into the first bread to be made from the new crop of the autumn and offered up in a temple and later on a church. If you happen to herd livestock instead of growing corn, it's halfway through the time of the summer pastures. So it's a great time for a meeting up of clans, tribes and families, for religious services, feasting, getting the young people to date each other, games and lawsuits. It's also quite pagan by the sounds of things, because it's very much in tune with nature. Very much so. Well, paganism is a religion. It's just as religious as Christianity. It's simply a religion centered upon nature more than some other religious traditions. And the whole beginning of Autumn Festival is pre-Christian, and it was Christianized as the Loaf Mass. Where did Lamas come from then? Because it sounds like it's something that all humans would have experienced if they're bringing in the harvest. Where did it start? Do we know? It is prehistoric. 
It is the beginning of autumn festival all over Northern Europe when history begins. And Lammas is just the English name for it. The Irish called it Lunasa, the Welsh Gwil Oust, and there are other local names for it all across Northern Europe. So other countries then celebrate Lammas apart from those cultures that you just mentioned? Absolutely right. In some form, the beginning of autumn festival is known right across Northern Europe. What types of agricultural products are harvested during Lammas then? It's the beginning of the harvest of wheat, barley, rye and oats mainly, and some lesser and rarer forms of cereal in other parts of Europe. And why would bread making be so important to Lammas then? Is it as a result of these things having been harvested that they are then made into bread and and celebrated and eaten? To quote the Christian Bible, bread is the staff of life. It's the staple carbohydrate food for most of old Europe and Western Asia. It's what people eat in this part of the old world, as opposed to rice or pasta in other parts. It's what you use to fill yourself up. And the word harvest, this is actually tied in linguistically into autumn as well, isn't it? It's Old English for autumn, harvest, is that right? Harvest is the Germanic term for harvest, for bringing in crops, when history begins. And we don't know where it comes from. There's a lot of speculation that it's connected to an old word for autumn. But it could be simply that it's the other way around, that autumn to German speakers thousands of years ago was simply the harvest season and harvest has always meant harvest. You mentioned um, a couple of minutes ago that um, this was one of the riskiest parts of the year. Can you explain why that would be? It's very nerve-wracking to be a cereal grower round about July and August because crops when they've grown tall and high and ripe are incredibly vulnerable It just takes one serious storm and your harvest is destroyed. It can also catch disease from spores blown on the wind. It can also be burned by raiding enemies. And even if none of those things happen, if the harvest is bountiful and the conditions perfect, just the effort of getting it in is backbreaking daily labour. How long depends on the size of your farm, but it usually takes days to bring it in and you need help. How many people would be involved in a typical harvest? I I suppose it does depend on the size of the land, but... um... It depends on the size of the land, but the average size traditional farm would need help to bring it in. In other words, the family alone isn't enough to reap it. So depending on uh, what kind of community you have, Some communities would draw lots to see uh, who gets reaped first and in what order after. And the community would shift around the different family steadings, helping to bring in the work on each. Later on, farms would usually hire in extra hands for money or for a slap-up meal at the end in order to thank them, or both. 
I think people listening to this now will probably understand why it was so difficult, even in recent centuries, to keep the food supplies going in the country and why we seem to have forgotten these traditions. And Lamas, as you say, has died out as a celebration. But it's actually really important to obviously one's survival, isn't it? It's really important until the 17th century. Every time the local harvest failed, and the harvest would fail often for a few years in succession in bad decades, you would get people dying of hunger. The number of burials in the local churchyard would more than double. Well, let's um, move on to an less morbid things and I suppose on to another celebration, another festival of autumn, and that's Harvest Home, which I suppose is along similar lines. If Lamas marks the start of the bringing in of the crops, does Harvest Home signify the end? I suppose home is a sort of conclusion. It does indeed. But the conclusion to the year's main activities takes different forms and happens at different times according to the activity on which your community relies. So, for example, if you're in an arable area dependent on cereal crops, as each farm finished reaping, it would pretty well invariably hold a celebration to thank or to pay the people who'd helped out with the harvest, the extra hands, which would include usually a superb meal. Very often, the only period in the year in which poor people would be able to gorge themselves to capacity, mm. and often with music and dancing and similar entertainments as well. If you were in a mainly fruit-growing area, vegetable-growing area, then the harvest comes a bit later, and so would the Harvest Home celebration, often going on into September, whereas August is the main month for cereals. If you're in a community that depends on the sea, that is, on fishing and trading in ships, then the fleets would come sailing home finally at the end of September, when the weather's starting to get rough. And that's when the port towns have their autumn celebration. And finally, if you live by herding limestock, it's in October when the grass stops growing. And so in the course of that month, the herds and the flocks be driven down from the mountains and the moorlands and from the infields into the byres and stables ready for the winter. So the form that your harvest home takes depends totally on what you've been doing. Right, I didn't appreciate that really. I, I immediately thought of harvest meaning crops, meaning fields, meaning agriculture, and not necessarily livestock and fisheries as well. Do the fishing community and livestock community, do they have a different name for it or is it the same? They'd have different names, which would vary according to the area. Strictly speaking, harvest home is, as you've suggested, a term only applied to areas dependent on growing crops. But the basic principle of a snap-up reunion feast to celebrate the end of the year's toil is absolutely universal. You mentioned when it was taking place, it varies according to the community who are doing their own harvest home. Does the Harvest Home Festival tie in at all with the autumn equinox? That's a really interesting and helpful question. I don't think it does traditionally. Traditionally, the autumn equinox has no relevance to traditional festivity 
simply because it doesn't happen to hit a particular point at which a traditional cycle of economic activity ends. And so there is no general Northern European festival around the autumn equinox. However, in the 20th century, it's become a quite widely observed festival for those interested in nature-related or nature-based spirituality or religion, like modern paganism, because now people have largely broken free of personal involvement in the farming or fishing cycle. It plugs a gap very neatly between the beginning and the end of autumn. Relating to those cycles, does Harvest Home have a different date every year? It depends on the community. Nowadays, individual farms have pretty well given up Harvest Home celebrations. Because of the mechanisation of agriculture, farmers don't need the extra hands anymore. And it's been replaced by harvest festivals held in churches and Harvest Home celebrations for entire communities like villages. And they tend to observe them on different weekends in the course of August and early September, so that different villages in an area can attend each other's celebrations. Uh, Yes, I think people will be familiar with harvest festivals and school celebrations and and that sort of thing, and um, gatherings in even in a pub or a village hall for a a harvest supper or something. But do these harvest home or Lammas festivals live on on their own in rural communities, at least in small pockets? I don't think that communities, apart from the church service to launch the harvest season, celebrate Lammas much anymore. And a harvest home is now something you do as a village or a set of villages, rather than uh, in individual celebrations. And both are really quite widespread still. Do you think that's sad, given that we've lost touch with nature in that sense? Not really, because something that was decentralised to individual farmhouses is now communal, and the tie of the land is still there. And if you attend uh, a classic modern harvest home in one of the Somerset villages near where I live in Bristol, for example, what you will have is dancing music often provided by a semi-professional band and a terrific meal and those are all the traditional components of harvest home celebration so with a harvest festival or harvest supper we haven't really missed out on much i don't think so no and there's probably bread to mop up the gravy with which would feature in lamas anyway i suppose absolutely lovely yep. yeah okay well let's move on to some darker winter months and colder as well as we talk about Halloween, which takes place on the 31st of October, which most people will know. Today it's mostly about fancy dress parties, but um, what are Halloween's roots? They're very deep. It's the universal ancient Northern European festival to mark the opening of winter and the end of the autumn season. And it's always had two aspects. The first is that it's the time of greatest plenty and reunion. It's the time when absolutely everybody in a traditional community, an ancient medieval community, who has been away for the summer herding or fighting or trading or on pilgrimage, comes back to the home community to settle down for the winter. 
the harvest is in, the beer's been brewed, the animals that can't be fed through the winter have been slaughtered. So it's the only time of the year when fresh meat is readily available. And so it's an obvious time for feasting and parties. On the other hand, everybody who's gathered is facing the most terrifying season of all, winter, which in the best of years is still going to have dirt, isolation, claustrophobia, cold, dark, a lack of greenery, and an immense potential for boredom and depression. And that's in a normal year. In a bad year, it will bring famine, epidemic disease, and hypothermia. Mm. So there's a shiver of fear going through Halloween. And mocking the spirits of dark and cold and fear has always been a part of it. Ah, it's a mocking idea. It's responding to the fear by trying to make fun of it and mirror it in a way. You're exactly right, Charles. Yeah. That's something that I've never really appreciated before. What about this um, idea of carving faces in vegetables? Today we're familiar with, I think, the American practice of carving faces into pumpkins and putting candles inside and, and the faces lighting up. And But in England, the carving of faces was in turnips, wasn't it, to start with? Yes, turnips or mangle wurzels, just a bigger version of turnips. But they're quite tough, aren't they, as a vegetable? <laughs> Yeah, but they come in much bigger and tougher skins. They make much better lanterns. Oh, I see. They Hmm. weren't particularly associated with Halloween until the 19th, 20th centuries. Traditionally, you hollow out turnips or mangle wurzels and put candles in them. And you use them to light your way at night if you're poor. So you have a tallow, that's an animal fat candle, and a carved turnip or mangle wurzel hollowed out skin, and you can see your way at night. Whereabouts would this tradition have started? Is there any particular region in, in England that uh, we can trace it back to? Not really. It's wherever you have turnips or mangle wurzels available. They were called jack-o'-lanterns as well, is that right? Yes. And why were they it's called It's just that? a nickname for an improvised lantern of that sort. It's also a nickname for the will-o'-the-wisps, the ignited marsh gas, which used to be much more common when there were many more undrained marshlands around England and Wales. And these little balls of light would float and flicker above the marshes, rather like turnip lanterns, and they had the same name. We move on to then this uh, modern practice of trick-or-treating, which many people would recognise today as an American thing. Does it have older origins, though? Yes, it really does have. It comes from the practice of the poorer members of community going around the richer members or providing entertainments to obtain food and drink for the feasting that evening for themselves. And... This custom was taken from Ireland by mass Irish immigration to America in the 19th century. And that's how the Americans turned it into trick or treat. Do you think Halloween as it is today is is still quite a captivating festival? Obviously, it's done quite well compared with Harvest Home and Lamas. Well, it's bigger than ever because we still, many of us, uh, find winter either inconvenient or downright depressing. And so having a festival to mock fear and raise our spirits 
no pun intended, <laughs> at the opening of winter remains a very good thing right across the Northern Hemisphere at this time of year. It's America, really, which turned it into a commercialized festival on a huge scale. And that's fine. It's just applying a traditional festival with a seasonal need to modern market forces. Okay, well, let's move on to uh, our next autumnal festival, which is Guy Fawkes Night. Now, technically, I suppose we're not in autumn when we talk about Guy Fawkes Night being the 5th of November. Am I right in saying that, that we've now moved into a different phase? That's absolutely right. We're about five days into winter, but I'm not being a purist about this. The idea of reckoning autumn from the 1st of August to the 31st of October is the traditional British Isles way of doing it. But in the 20th century, the British adopted a modern American system, which suits the climate of the United States much better which is to start the fall, which is the decline of the year, on the 21st of September and ended on the 21st of December, by which time the trees and the fields are bare. This is quite a different system. And now to complicate matters further, though I'm not worried, we have a meteorological system which starts seasons on the 1st of September for autumn and the 1st of December for winter. So we now have three systems side by side. I can probably say that it feels quite wintry around um, the 5th of November, nonetheless. Of course, bonfire night, the 5th of November, can obviously be traced back to the gunpowder plot of 1605. Can you explain the ultimate aim of the plotters and what their grievance was? I shall. But first, I'll take up that fascinating point you made about it feeling wintry around the 5th of November. You're absolutely right if what you call winter is climate. Mm. But traditionally, what you call winter is the landscape. And you're nowhere near winter, traditionally speaking, at the 5th of November, because so many of the leaves are still on the trees. They're on their beautiful blazing colours. And then they fall through uh, the rest of the month. So you're absolutely right to agree with me that it is wintry and climate by the beginning of um, November. But in American terms, going by the leaves, it's not winter yet. So a lot here hangs in your definition of winter. And now to go to your question of the gunpowder plot. Mm. This was a terrorist conspiracy or a conspiracy by freedom fighters, depending on uh, your point of view. They are a group of wild, desperate Roman Catholics, mostly aggressive, marginalized, ambitious young men from the gentry classes who wanted to strike a blow to free their religion from what was quite serious persecution by the Protestant church of the Reformed English, which had started really under Elizabeth only a generation before, and instituted a persecution at its height by 1605, which is when the plot begins. And they want to blow up Parliament and blow up the king. Yes, which means destroying pretty well the entire political nation in one blast. Not just the king, but some other members, the royal family, the House of Lords, and the House of Commons. Since the House of Commons has gentry and civic leaders from all over the nation, 
and the House of Lords has practically the entire adult male aristocracy. This is removing the political leadership of the country at one blast, and it's a big blast. The amount of gunpowder stacked up by the plotters, if it had been ignited, would have been like a small nuclear device. It would have blown away not just the Palace of Westminster, the Houses of Parliament, but also Westminster Abbey and the entire surrounding area of Westminster. Wow. So it was a really serious thing that it was actually stopped then. But how many months of planning actually went into this large-scale attempted assassination? Two years, although that's longer than they expected because they had to keep postponing it, partly because the meeting of Parliament itself got postponed, but also because gunpowder decays, it goes off, it stops Mm. being combustible. And because the powder was kept waiting because Parliament was being postponed, they had to get new powder at one point in order to replace the old. Remarkable. So we know that Guy Fawkes was one of the conspirators. What happened to him? Because I gather he was the man to light the fuse. That's exactly right. He's the munitions expert of the plotters, the doer professional soldier who understands explosives. That's why he had the role of being the one man on the spot to start the explosion. And that's why he's iconic. He'd have lit the fuse and slipped away to safety. What happened to him after he was arrested? Because obviously he was caught red-handed. He was tortured horribly to break him. And in the end, he was broken. But by then, uh, the government had worked out what was going on because his fellow plotters enacted Plan B, which was to ride off into the Midlands and try and start a rebellion to uh, overthrow the government anyway. They didn't have support. They didn't really have a hope. And they were rounded up and killed or taken prisoner. This was really part of the sheer lack of realism of the gunpowder plotters. They were extremely brave, they were extremely determined, but really they weren't very sensible. Yes, it sounded overambitious in in a way. It was almost too good to be true. The co-conspirators, did they all hang as well and hung, drawn and quartered? All of those who were taken prisoner who didn't die in prison, which was the case of one of the leaders, were put to a horrible death in public of being dragged over the cobbles on hurdles, which are rough sledges, to the place of execution, hanged until they were half choked, cut down, still alive, and castrated and disemboweled. And they would die during the disemboweling, and then their bodies would be hacked into four pieces, and their heads cut off, and the bits of them displayed in public for years. After all this gruesomeness, why did Guy Fawkes later become the person who was most remembered for being involved in the plot? Well, initially it was the Pope, the head of the Catholic Church, who was burned in effigy on the Guy Fawkes bonfires. But the 19th century, we became more of a multi-faith society at last, and the last restrictions on Roman Catholics were lifted. I mean, it's quite late. Uh, This is Hmm. 300 years odd after the Reformation. 
and Guy Fawkes replaced the Pope as a kind of stage villain, as the man who was trying to light the fuse to destroy Parliament, which had by then the 19th century become even more representative as our key national institution. And with his beard and moustache, with his slouch hat, with his dark lantern, a smoked lantern to give out very little betraying light, he's got the kit, he's got the costume for a stage villain. It's interesting that the Pope was so disliked for so many centuries as well. Well, he's the head of Knott's, which is not only the main rival church Mm. to the Reformed Church of England, but the guy who had been the head of the church in England until the Reformation, and for many, many years still had many more followers than the Protestant Church of England. So Catholicism was militarily much more powerful. You've described how Guy Fawkes becomes this character who becomes this villain, that, and everyone loves a villain, I suppose. But why on earth do we continue doing it? To explain it to maybe someone from North America, it's, it's quite hard to explain, isn't it? There's a very simple reason why Guy Fawkes Night remained popular long after it was cut loose from its religious associations. And that is that it enables modern people to have bonfires and fireworks, a classic fire festival at the beginning of winter. So we cheer ourselves up by holding up fire against the night in a classic spirit-raising way. And it's no coincidence that Guy Fawkes Night caught on in exactly those Protestant regions where Halloween had got forgotten. So Halloween and Guy Fawkes Night are traditionally alternatives. And we're lucky enough now to have both together, if we wish. Yes, and only really a week apart, if that. That's right. A compound beginning of winter festival. What's most illuminating, I think, is probably the best way to describe it. When we look back at all this information then, these four festivals, which autumn tradition remains strongest in the modern psyche today? Or does it depend on which country you're in, I suppose? UK versus America, for example. I don't think there is a UK versus America here, because the UK has been in many ways Americanized quite painlessly and profitably. Really, the festival which stands out is the compound beginning of winter one. That's Halloween plus bonfire night for the British, Halloween for the Americans and the Irish and the Highland Scots. So this is very important because it fulfills an essential human need which is to cheer ourselves up on facing the dark and the cold. And that's not going to change as long as we live in a hemisphere like ours. Yes, where it gets cold and miserable and dark and wet and and all the rest of it during winter. The thing is, of course, that these festivals, these four festivals, especially Halloween and Guy Fawkes Nights, they're just taking us into the next one, which will be, depending on which period of history you're talking about, things that we've talked about before. Saturnalia, Christmas, all these sorts of things. In some respects, they're just the introduction to autumn and winter in terms of festivities and trying to cheer ourselves up, aren't they? In many ways, what we're doing now is instituting a major annual festive season that starts at Halloween and ends at New Year. 
and as a way of taking on winter and cheering ourselves up in the dark. That's a totally brilliant idea. It's also so long and so rich. It gives us no need for communal festivities, stay home festivities for the rest of the year. Our festivities in the rest of the year, the light half of the year, really consist of holidays, of getting out of our communities as families and individuals and going abroad or into the country or to the beach. So apart from winter solstice, which would have been celebrated in prehistoric times for the shortest day to be celebrated and longer days to come, was there ever later on in in history a period where one would mark the end of winter and the beginning of spring? Absolutely right. It's the cluster of festivals that used to take place around the beginning of February, which is the first spring month. It's the month when birds renew their nests and start to mate, and when the first flowers and the first leaves appear, and the darkness leaves the afternoon. So there was a general Northern European festival around the beginning of February, known to the Irish as Imolk, to the Welsh as Gwilvar, and to the English as Candlemas. And we've lost that now, have we? Would you say? We have, largely because... uh, The Christmas festive season is so major, and uh, after that, people seem to need a gap in which to get down to work solidly before the holiday season begins with Easter. Mm. Out of all these festivals then, including this lost one of Candlemas and the Welsh and Irish ones that you just mentioned, do you have a favourite autumnal festival? I am very fond of Lammas or Lunasa or Gwil oust, largely because it happens to a wonderful time of year. It's usually around late July, the beginning of August, even warmer than it is in June. And it's the time when the school holidays are happening and most people are available to get together for a celebration. So for sheer ease and fun in the open air, that's my favourite. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we're going back to another unforgettable date, 1066 and the Battle of Hastings. Now, if you put yourselves in the minds of the English and King Harold, all they have to do is hold the line, keep their position, and potentially they're going to win the day. Thanks for listening. See you next time.